0: What do marketers have to worry about from the DOJ, and what can we expect from the DOJ under the Biden administration? I'm Alexa Singh, an associate in Manat's advertising, marketing, and media practice.
1: And I'm Po Yee, a partner in the same practice, and this is Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. For this episode, we invited Rick Hartunian and Jacqueline Wolf from our Investigations and White Collar Defense Group to discuss what marketers can expect from the Department of Justice as it transitions from four years of the Trump administration to the impending Biden administration. Prior to joining Manat, Rick was a federal prosecutor for 20 years, most recently as a U.S. attorney for New York's Northern District under the Obama administration. In private practice, Rick defends clients across the full spectrum of white collar crime and investigations matters, including allegations of consumer fraud, healthcare fraud, Bank Secrecy Act, anti money laundering violations, and environmental and defense procurement fraud. Jacqueline is also a former federal prosecutor and represents both companies and individuals in investigations by the Department of Justice, the Securities Exchange Commission, and other regulatory agencies. Rick and Jacqueline, thank you for joining us today. Marketers first look to the FTC for guidance and regulatory enforcement. But what marketers and advertising lawyers might not always think about, but should, is the role that the Department of Justice plays in advertising and marketing. Rick, could you give us a primer on the DOJ? When and how does the DOJ get involved in marketing? And why should marketers care about what the DOJ says and does?
2: Thank you, Paul. It's great to be here today. And uh, I would have to say that DOJ gets involved in cases that come to their attention through a variety of sources, which can be very broad. And they're essentially in the business of looking for conduct by businesses and people who are engaged in deceptive or fraudulent advertising or marketing practices. And so I think companies need to be mindful of the fact that the department is there working in tandem with other independent agencies like the FTC to bring cases when they feel that it's appropriate to do so. And those cases can obviously be criminal cases, which are typically reserved for the most serious types of conduct, the most egregious type of conduct, or can be civil cases. And those cases perhaps don't rise to the level of intentional willful misconduct, but certainly are problematic in DOJ's eyes. And so we've seen that the department has significant resources on both sides of the equation, if you will, significant criminal resources, obviously, in their litigating components in main justice, in their field offices, which are the 94 U.S. attorney's offices. And they also have significant civil assets as well. And uh, of course, they have the uh, consumer protection branch, the antitrust division, the Fraud Section, Out of Maine Justice, and each of the U.S. Attorney's Offices as well has a robust civil division that can bring these kinds of cases.
0: It's interesting that the DOJ has a Consumer Protection Branch. It seems that there would be some overlap with the FTC. How does DOJ enforcement differ from FTC enforcement?
2: Well, the FTC is an independent regulatory agency, and its mission is to protect consumers and promote competition. It's a bipartisan agency. It's headed by a commission, and it works many times through the administrative process and through the civil litigation process. It issues warning letters and guidance documents and can bring civil lawsuits in an attempt to enforce the FTC Act or the Clayton Act or the Sherman Act or a whole variety of other acts. But it also can become involved in investigations that get referred to the Department of Justice. For example, it has a unit that can develop evidence for criminal cases. And like many independent agencies, and I know this from my work at the Department of Justice for many years, They can gather up evidence through the administrative process, and they can package that up for referral to the Department of Justice, which perhaps has greater resources in terms of bringing larger civil cases or certainly criminal cases. And so I think we see them work together in tandem, cooperatively. And while interagency cooperation is not always seamless in the government, I think there's been a push over the past few years to improve that cooperation.
1: Rick, it's clear from what you said that it's important for marketers to understand that the FTC and the DOJ can pool their resources together to bring enforcement actions. Jacqueline, could you tell us some examples that you know of that involve DOJ's activities in the advertising and marketing industry?
3: Sure, I'd love to do that. And thank you, Poe, for having us. You know, historically, your bread and butter criminal justice kind of case against a marketer would be false advertising in the media where there's a vulnerable population that's the target for the ad. Um, With e-commerce, that's changed. In September of this past year, there was a case that was brought uh, against several um, marketers who were acting as consultants to third-party sellers on the Amazon platform. And the allegations include bribery of Amazon employees to employees who were operating in India, acting contrary clearly to their employers' procedures and policies, they were providing algorithms to these consultants. The consultants were using the algorithms and inside information about customers, about competitors of their clients, and using that information to post misleading information on their competitors' sites. And the charges are fairly significant, There are two conspiracy charges. One is a wire fraud conspiracy charge and wire fraud, which can bring a penalty of up to 20 years in prison. The other charge is conspiracy to use a communication facility to commit commercial bribery and conspiracy to access a protected computer without authorization because they actually were able to kind of hack in to the Amazon site and post things that Amazon never would have allowed. They represented parties whose products had been yanked from the Amazon site as being inappropriate and were able to reinstitute them onto the site. There were certain products that Amazon would not allow to be on the sites because they were dangerous or potentially dangerous to consumers. And they were able to get those on the sites. So that's a very different type of case than a misstatement in an ad. It is really manipulating the e-commerce platform in a way to help the marketer's client. And the result of these charges in September of this year.
0: Those are very serious charges. Poe and I deal with unfair competition issues that are similar in that the ultimate harm is faced by consumers. In fraud cases like this,
3: who benefits? That's true. And of course, the people who are were, who were going to benefit from this the most are going to be the folks who hired these marketers. So supposedly the bribe money came to a total of $100,000, which is not all that much over a period of several years. But the estimate in the indictment in terms of additional sales was something like 100 million. So it wasn't much of a bribe, but it was a significant amount of revenue for those who stood to gain from manipulating the platform, which is what happened here.
1: I think in cases like that, it's important, really, for anyone who is involved with e-commerce platform to be cognizant of what could potentially go wrong and make sure that they have a compliance program to to follow through to avoid problems like that. But you know, I'm sure we can talk about that later. But I I do think that it's really important um, that you brought that up because I, it's something that all of our our listeners should be mindful of. That in marketing, these issues can come up, and it's really important for everybody to understand what could potentially go wrong in marketing.
3: I agree. And I think there's a particularly egregious allegations here, but people do hire optimizers and other people to help them in terms of product placement and things of that nature. And if your marketer is too good to be true or is offering things that sound absolutely fabulous for your product, but you haven't heard that that's really possible, you might want to step back and think of using a different marketer.
1: That's a really good point. There is one other issue, Jacqueline, I wanted to ask you, which is something that rocked the advertising industry a few years ago, relating to a report that was issued by K2 and the uh, ANA. Could you comment on that? I know that you know, we've been involved with, with some of that work.
3: Sure. So I guess everybody on this, listening to this podcast is going to know about this. (laughs) Um, They'll know probably more than I do. In 2015, ANA hired K2, which was a part of Kroll and and it was an offshoot, to investigate and survey uh, certain practices in the industry. And the report, I think, came out in 2016, if I'm not mistaken. And the Bureau, the FBI, started to investigate the allegations that were in the report. There were a lot of uh, different allegations in the report, but the one that seemed to have caught the eye initially of the Department of Justice and the FBI was related to rebates that were allegedly provided by the media for volume, for volume placements that were provided to the advertising agencies that the advertising agencies did not disclose to the brand that had hired them and believed that the advertising agencies were working on their behalf. So that was the investigation, but the FBI was serving subpoenas on everyone in the chain. So from the brand all the way down to the media, everyone in between who held any role in that placement of that ad was subpoenaed and would have to produce documents. And we had clients who really were not involved in anything nefarious, but who had to expend significant amounts of money in order to collect the documents, produce the documents, hire counsel to interview people to make sure there was nothing nefarious, And also to look at the contracts that they had with the various parties to see who is going to pay for it, number one. But number two, maybe more importantly, is did they have to disclose any of this? Do they have to disclose the subpoena? Do they have to provide information to the people they work with on a day-to-day basis? So they're in the unenviable position of having to do business with people on a day-to-day basis who they're also producing documents about to the federal government, which was awkward, to say the least.
1: (laughs) I wonder, Rick, I think this this all happened while you were still with the DOJ. And when a company receives a subpoena like that or a government investigation, what would you say is the first thing the company should do? The company not being the actual target, but is receiving requests to cooperate with the government agency
2: the company should resist the temptation to handle the matter itself. It may take the view that it's obviously done nothing wrong and to consult with outside counsel is going to be an expensive proposition. But we've seen some decisions like that turn out to be bad decisions. And I think it would be wise at least to consult with outside counsel about the scope of the request, whether it's a subpoena or a civil investigative demand, who's making the request and it may be wise to get outside counsel involved, to interface with the government agency so that there can be kind of a buffer in between the company and the investigators. And that generally is a good way to handle things. And I would certainly make that initial recommendation of any client of mine who uh, I learned had received such a request.
0: I imagine that those recommendations hold regardless of who is in office. Switching gears, what has the Trump administration focused on in the past four years And what might change under the next administration?
2: Well, that's an interesting question, Alexa. I think there's uh, been a lot of speculation about that. I think it's fair to say that white-collar enforcement activity and white-collar cases in general have been slower during the Trump administration than perhaps during the Obama administration. And I think it's fair to say as well that there's an expectation that enforcement against companies is likely to pick up in a Biden administration. What have the priorities of the Trump administration been? Uh, certainly, there's been a lot of focus on immigration-related crime and violent crime, but that's not to say that there hasn't been a concern about business-related crimes and e-commerce-related matters. In fact, the Justice Department during 2018 stood up a task force on market integrity and consumer fraud by executive order whose purpose was to coordinate the work of the various agencies that we've talked about, not only the DOJ and its investigative components, which are, you know, the FBI and other investigative agencies, but also independent federal agencies, like the ones we've been talking about, the FTC and the SEC and the CFPB and the Small Business Administration, together with other cabinet-level agencies, HHS and the Department of Defense and Treasury The purpose, I think, was to bring all of these groups together to leverage their various resources and to make impactful cases and to address fraudulent conduct and fraud against the government in particular. I think going forward, it's fair to say that there's going to be a significant amount of investigative and prosecutive resources spent investigating stimulus-related fraud. And that is any fraud that arises out of two and a half- trillion dollars in CARES Act money that's been pushed out so far with perhaps more to come after the new year. And so there's a lot of different pieces of that and components of that. One that most people may have some knowledge about is the Paycheck Protection Program. That was a, a kind of a two-phase, $300-plus in each phase stimulus program that was pushed out through the SBA for small businesses who could certify that the uncertainty, uh, economic uncertainty, made loans necessary for ongoing operations. And these loans weren't just any kind of loans. These are forgivable loans. But they came with strings attached and certifications that the money would be used primarily for payroll, but also for some other limited purposes. And so uh, I think there's going to be a lot of enforcement activity focused on the Paycheck Protection Program and other components of the CARES Act and other kinds of stimulus money that's been pushed out.
3: Yes, if you're going to get government money, expect to be scrutinized. Especially as, as Rick said before, there are certain certifications that are made before you could get the funds. And certifications for PPP loans, you have to say you're going to use it for payroll. For CARES Act, there were specific things, because so that's in the healthcare space, you were supposed to be using the funds for. If you don't use the funds, For the items that you certified you were going to use them for, that's viewed as a fraud and a false statement. And it allows the government to go after you criminally. It also allows the government to go after you civilly under the False Claims Act it allows a lot of things. It also gives the opportunity for seizing your assets under the forfeiture rules. I mean, there are all kinds of things the government can do to make it very difficult for you if you certify falsely and your intention is to use the money for something other than what it's intended for. In terms of the kinds of cases that have been brought since the loans you know, were, were given out, they tend to be of the more egregious kind they tend to be someone got a loan saying they're going to use it for their small business to pay their employees and they use it instead to buy a Lamborghini. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are the types of cases that you've seen that, because they're the easiest cases to bring right now, but because the government's going to need money and that's going to happen. And that has happened historically when the government really needs money, more cases are going to be brought. And it is likely that cases that aren't as egregious, are going to follow from those that have been brought recently that are very egregious. And in particular, an area that touches on this a little bit, if you're getting money because under the CARES Act, and you've got a small business, and you want to pay your employees, and you want to get PPE, you know, the equipment for protecting your employees, and you're saying that's what you're doing with the money, and you use the money for marketing, and then you have a fraudulent statement in the marketing about something your company's doing that they really are not doing then you're going to have a double whammy, basically, and you can be prosecuted on both fronts. So I do think this is going to be an area of focus. Marketers should keep this in mind. These cases are likely
0: going to continue well into 2021. Rick, based on your experience, how do you think these cases and the DOJ's focus will be affected by the transition to the Biden administration, especially as that transition has been delayed?
2: So Alexa, I think it is pretty clear that. There's going to be some change in prioritization during the Obama administration. uh, There was a push for individual accountability and prosecutors' offices across the country were tasked with kind of getting at the root of illegal or improper conduct not just settling cases with companies, but actually trying to develop information about who at the company was involved. And so there were some restrictions placed on the level of cooperation that companies could achieve unless they kind of laid bare everything and everyone who might've committed wrongdoing. Those rules were loosened a bit during the uh, Trump administration. And so I expect that there may be a return to more significant individual accountability in the coming administration. But I think, you know, by and large, the work of the department generally continues. You know, most of the department is staffed with career federal prosecutors, and they're going to be working cases, perhaps, that they've been working. But there'll be a focus, as I said, on, and as Jacqueline has pointed out, on recovering stimulus money, certainly. And on some of the things that we've seen historically develop, and they involved e-commerce, and different kinds of false and deceptive advertising practices using the internet, product allocation schemes, and anti-competitive conduct. I think that's certainly going to be a priority in the coming administration. Certainly, uh, healthcare-related fraud has been a priority, will continue to be a priority. And any coronavirus-related fraudulent conduct, be it fraudulent advertising or deceptive advertising about testing kits or PPE price gouging or hoarding or stockpiling. These are conducts that are going to be uh, given strict scrutiny, I think, in the the coming year and beyond. And so I think, as I said, there's going to be more activity in the corporate sector and companies need to be mindful of that.
0: Thank you both for joining us on the podcast today to discuss what marketers have to worry about from the DOJ and what we can expect from the DOJ under the Biden-Harris administration could you please provide a few practice tips for our listeners to help avoid a DOJ action in advertising or marketing?
3: All right. Well, that's easy. One is I would say just because it's been this way in the industry for the last 25 years, that's not a defense. It's a good time to look at your policies, your procedures. Do your actions actually meet those policies and procedures? The other piece is it's a good time to review your website and your clients' websites because the Department of Justice, just like other agencies like the SEC, do search term and keyword searches on websites. And they're looking for very specific terms. They're looking for hyperbole. They're looking for terms that they view as potentially indicating fraud. And they will investigate you if they're concerned about those terms. So it's a good time to look at your website and your client's websites.
2: And those are great points, Jacqueline. And uh, I I think it's clear that agencies are using data analytics more and more to develop information like you've described. And so someone company can come on the government's radar screen without there being some direct problem reported to the government or some lawsuit being brought that calls the conduct to the government's attention. I would add uh, to your list, having a robust compliance program, actually, you know, taking a look at the kind of business that your company does and developing a program that's meaningful that can kind of check the work so that A, you just improve the productivity and general operations of your company. But in the event that scrutiny develops through one way or another, you can point to what you've done as a way to kind of shield your company from a bad result.
1: Thank you for joining us once again on Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. For more on the DOJ and its impact on advertisers, please visit the related resources listed in this episode's caption. Also, to further support advertisers in mitigating regulatory enforcement and consumer litigation risks, Manat recently released its first Advertising and Marketing Law Guide, which offers concrete, digestible compliance tips and examples across a wide range of advertising and marketing topics. Please reach out to our advertising, marketing, and media team for information on pricing and to access a preview of the guide.
3: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. The views expressed on the podcast reflect
2: the personal views and opinions of the participants and are not intended to constitute legal advice or counsel under any circumstance. Downloading and listening to this recording do not result in the formation of an
3: attorney, client, or other business relationship. You should not act on any information in the podcast without seeking
2: the advice of a competent attorney licensed to practice in your jurisdiction.